country Trees You know we can Work together and learn what we need To meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak You have a world to offer Every day Climb with the ISA Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. We'll be providing full-length educational talk by researchers, educators, and practitioners, keeping you up to date with new developments in the field of arboriculture. New podcasts will be made available about once a month for you to download. We recommend that you subscribe to this series so that you don't miss a single topic. If you have a favorite arboricultural topic that you would like to learn more about, please contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the International Society of Arboriculture Headquarters in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Today's lecture is by Dr. Jim Clark. Jim is the Vice President of Hort Science, which is located in Pleasanton, California. He is an internationally renowned consulting arborist and author of many books. Today's talk focuses on tree decline syndromes. It was originally presented at the ISA Southern Chapter meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina in March 2010. This morning I told you about the uh, tree care guidelines idea, right? The guiding principles of tree care. One of those was that um, tree management and pest management were the same thing. They, were, they operated in the same way. So today, this afternoon, I'm going to take that idea and I'm going to show you some examples of that in practice. So with, with what are known as tree declines. But before that... I have to ask you a question, off-topic question, because um, my former wife, uh, the woman formerly known as Mrs. Clark, now known as Mrs. Jackson, is, has become a NASCAR fan. And uh, Gretchen told me that she started watching the last five minutes of the race, and then she started watching the last how, half hour of the race. Now, you know, her Sunday is set uh, by the race. And her favorite driver is Kevin Harvick. Is he going to make the chase? I know it's only a couple races into the season, but can you throw me a bone here? Throw the little woman a bone? Okay, you can think about it. See me later. All right, so that's my NASCAR question, and I, and I okay. Tom, stand next to that guy. He's uh, way too comfortable. So the first thing I need to tell you is that tree declines are what we call problems that we don't know what they are. We, we don't identify, can't identify them. So that, I think that's one way arborists describe declines. We say, oh, you know, that's Aleppo pine decline when we don't really know what the problem is. But it, it, ha, uh, taking it more seriously, tree decline is a term that was introduced by Paul Mannion a very famous forest pathologist from uh, State University of New York in Syracuse in 1981 in his book, Tree Disease Concepts. Here's the second edition cover. I, I only have the first edition, so. 
What he, what he um, described, what Mannion, uh, he, he really, he postulated, he thought about, he presented the idea that decline was a category of disease, that there were these disease organisms that weren't like chestnut blight or weren't like um, uh, Dutch elm disease. In some ways, oak wilt is, is uh, somewhat in that category of where, you know, a, a plant gets the disease and then it dies, you know, the, the, in that Dutch elm disease category. There were a group of diseases or problems where there seemed to be repeated patterns of biotic and abiotic factors coming together that produced a gradual deterioration in plant health leading to death. You know, that, so again, unlike Dutch elm disease or chestnut blight, this is a situation where you would see these abiotic, biotic factors working together in fairly specific ways, in fairly specific ways. And he described three kinds of factors that were uh, associated with tree declines as a group of disease, a category of disease. The first he called uh, predisposing. These are static factors. They're factors associated with the, the tree and the place in which you're putting it, in which we have little or no control. And uh, climate is one of those. Um, soil conditions would be another. Uh, genetic potential of the tree. And age. Because uh, Mannion observed that most declines are, occur in older, more mature trees that it was after the trees were established. Again, he was a forest pathologist, not an arborist, who was looking at this category. Uh, Mannion described that these predisposing factors as weakening a plant growing in the wrong location. So here's an, uh, another sort of application of right plant, right place. Weakening a plant growing in the wrong location. We take a plant out of its native range, put it in a bad location, and that has an impact. That's a predisposing factor. Um, there's a picture of the Presidio in California as my example of this. Um, the Presidio was not a forested landscape when the Spanish arrived, right? So it was uh, largely sand dunes with some coastal sage uh, scrub. So, you know, the dominant vegetation was either uh, you know, sand dunes, grassland, or, you know, three or four foot high material. The army um, decided that it needed to plant trees. They needed to forest this area. They tried over 200 different species of tree. Four survived. Four thrived in this environment. And the Presidio we see today, the 60 to 70,000 trees there, are dominated by these four species of tree. That 196 different types were not able to tolerate to develop it at this location. The second category of factors, the second group of factors, are called inciting factors. These are short-term that produce injury. They can be biotic or abiotic. Um, examples would include defoliating insects, drought, mechanical injury. So they produce a wound. We hit the tr lower trunk of the tree with a lawnmower. Um, a tree gets defoliated by uh, insects or it gets attacked by scale or leaf miners or something like that or the tree experiences a drought and is drought stressed. 
And my example here is uh, California oak moth. Let's see here. Can you see the, can you see the mouse on the top? That's, that's a healthy tree before. That's the tree after. So uh, that happens in, a very, in our area in a very cyclic way, meaning every year is not bad, but some years are particularly bad. California oak worm, oak moth. Um, it doesn't seem to have long-term effects on tree health. So we don't have a coast live oak decline in which oak moth seems to play a role, but that's the example I have of defoliation. The third category of factors were called contributing factors. These you want to think of as opportunistic or persistent. Mannion described them as signs of a weakened host. And uh, examples include bark beetles, canker fungi, um, decay fungi. So uh, in our part of the world, we have Armillaria malia, is a fungus that we have in the soil. You know, you can pull soil out of the ground and test for Armillaria and find it. It is normally a saprophyte. It uh, decays dead wood. You know, it is not normally parasitic at all. But there are conditions under which Armillaria becomes pathogenic and it attacks uh, large buttress roots in the lower trunk of the tree. And those are usually associated with uh, heavy irrigation, poor soil drainage, fill soil around the base, things like that. So this is something that's in the soil all the time that when the opportunity presents itself in the form of a weakened host, it takes advantage of it, right? So those are the those three categories of factors predisposing, inciting, and contributory. Now, if you've heard me talk about this topic before, the, these topics, you know that I think that there's a parallel between tree health, tree pest management, and human health. So here's my heart disease example. So if we think about um, predisposing factors in heart disease, there clearly is a genetic component to that. You know, we're, we're more likely to get heart disease if our parents had heart disease. Some inciting factors that go along with that, that uh, in, in this case necessarily be, but uh, might weaken, right, might weaken the host. Lack of exercises, uh, carrying a few too many pounds, um, poor diet. Um, you know, my, uh, my physician, you know, knows that I'm not going to change my diet, so I got to take the Lovastat, and, you know, I'm sure some of you have the same issue. And then a, a factor that might take uh, advantage of the weakened host is stress, right? Well, I think there's a, there's a relationship between stress and heart disease. There are, there are probably other factors uh, associated with heart disease. I'm, I, I'm not trying to suggest that I know anything about it. It is clear, I think, also that heart disease and its incident increases with age, so uh, if those of, you, those of you that are my age, you know, aren't we supposed to take our baby aspirin every day, right? Supposed to take your uh, baby, maybe not. And uh, so I think that we could use Mannion's model when we're thinking about our trees. We might remind ourselves that this is, there is a parallel in the human condition, at least with heart disease. Now, uh, Mannion uh, was a pathologist. He was looking at this from the standpoint of disease. So he, he postulated, suggested in his book that there was a category of disease that were these declines that were more complicated than, than Dutch elm disease. 
he characterized this process, this combination of, dispose, of factors and how they might interact as a disease decline spiral. And uh, like any good pathologist, he was interested in the death of the plant. You know, um, structural stability never entered into the equation. And a key component to this is it's more likely that mature trees are going to be uh, affected than young trees. Uh, what are the common um, symptoms that we see, common, in some ways, progression of symptoms? Reduced growth, smaller foliage, maybe sparser foliage. Um, this is accompanied by or either preceded by loss of fine roots and uh, mycorrhizal associations. Uh, in uh, part premature fall color, twig and branch dieback, water sprouts, epicormic shoots develop, and then the development of decay organisms at the base and in the roots. So that would be a typical pattern. You don't get the root decay first, you get the root decay after these other things have occurred, and normally the first symptom is a reduction in growth, a loss of what I would call vigor. Uh, loss of vitality or health. So that's tree disease concepts from 1981-1991. Now in 1987, um, Jerry Franklin, uh, Hal Shugart, and Mark Harmon uh, contributed a paper to bioscience, a theme issue in bioscience, and the title of the paper was Tree Death as an Ecological Process. Uh, these three guys are not pathologists, they're ecologists. And it was at a time in forest ecology when the importance of dead, dying um, trees in old growth stands was becoming recognized. The con contribution of coarse woody debris material on the ground was being recognized. So they were describing patterns of tree death. And really, uh, if you know these three guys, they're describing it for Douglas fir forests in the Pacific Northwest. Actually, Douglas fir forests in the west of Cascades in the Pacific Northwest, in Oregon and Washington. And here is their example of a, more, uh, of a disease decline spiral for Douglas fir under sun conditions. Now, let's see. So we have a healthy tree. In a forest setting, that healthy tree then grows tall enough that it is then begins to compete with others, with its neighbors. One option is that it can become suppressed, and so its neighbors overgrow it, they shade it, they overtop it. That could be, could be associated with defoliation by a variety of insects, leading to attack by bark beetles. Bark beetles carry blue stain, and then the next thing is death. Now, in this case, I don't think blue stain causes the death. I think the blue stain is just associated with the bark beetle attack, but I got to defer to Jerry Franklin. The guy's forgotten more about forest ecology. So then let me just tell you one of the other things that they described. They described this spiral as having escape routes, that there were ways for trees to get out of this spiral depending upon their growing conditions, right? Now, we're not talking about stand management conditions. We're talking about uh, growing conditions. For example, when the tree faced competition, if it became a dominant tree, you know, it was outgrowing its neighbors and didn't react to competition, didn't get suppressed, that took it out of the mortality spiral because then you had a healthy tree. 
if it was suppressed and its neighbor fell over in a windstorm and it was released, the same kind of thing happened. It was taken out of that suppressed, low-light, non-vigorous condition. If it had enough carbohydrate reserves to recover from defoliation, then it could escape this spiral. And uh, bark beetle defense primarily is the ability to pitch out the beetle, which is often a water stress, uh, a water situation, water uh, relations response. And if you can successfully avoid bark beetle attack, then you can avoid death. Uh, Franklin and Shugart and Harmon called this the mort a mortality spiral. So they weren't interested just in disease, and they, so they took this concept of the disease decline spiral and called it a mortality spiral. Again, they were interested in forest stand development um, and how stands, natural stands, might emerge. What they suggested from this is that for um, Douglas Fir, there might be a couple of these spirals. Uh, all of which ended in death, all of which followed predictable paths, but maybe had different factors working in them. They said as the, tree as the trees progress along this spiral, its opportunities for escape become limited. What they, meant, what they meant by that is when the tree gets down here to the bark beetle blue stain phase, there's not much we can do to get it back. Right? There's only, uh, there, there are very limited opportunities for escape. What would be the heart disease character? You know, if your dad and your granddad died of heart attacks and you're uh, Jim Clark and you're stressed and, you know, you're not eating right and you're overweight and your cholesterol is 380, the chances of you having a heart attack are greater than if you don't have those factors. Now, in 1991, uh, Nelda and I uh, published a paper called Management of Mature Trees. And what we did is we took this mortality spiral idea and applied it to arboriculture. So we took the mortality spiral out of the woods and put it into, um, you know, regular tree care to urban and suburban environments where we have managed trees rather than unmanaged stands. And in particular, we were interested in the impact of tree care practices and activities around the tree on where that, um, how those mortality spirals would begin to develop. I'm sure this never happens here. I, I wish I could say this was a takedown, but uh, it's not really. So let me give you three examples of decline syndromes and uh, sort of move back and forth between the disease decline spiral and the mortality spiral. And, uh, and uh, let, me, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about learning about these declines and then what are the, what's the common theme to dealing with them, to responding with them, responding to them. Um, the first is, uh, a mon is, I want to talk about Monterey pine, uh, Pinus radiata which is a tree that, that you never see. I don't think you ever see it. And um, it's probably the most uh, widely planted pine in the world, uh, even though it is native to um, five little itty-bitty remnant areas, two on the California coast and then three on islands in Mexico. So this was a tree that in uh, geologic history had a much wider distribution, 
probably originated in Mexico because Mexico happens to be a center of evolutionary species uh, radiation for pines, a secondary center. It, a whole number of species resulted, and Monterey pine once dominated in California or had a much wider range, and as the climate changed, it's been pushed, um, it's eventually it'll get pushed off the edge of the ocean. Uh, and it is, uh, a, it's located on um, glacial plains. They're uplifted plains of soil that are uh, always sandy. It has a strong marine influence to its native distribution. By that I mean they have uh, cool, wet winters, cool, moist summers. It doesn't rain in the summer, but gets lots of fog, and it's uh, cool temperatures. Tree matures at about 60 years. The average lifespan for uh, a Monterey pine um, in its native range is about 85 years. The maximum trees are in the 140 to 150 range. Uh, so I don't really call this a long-lived tree. Now, where do I get this information? You get this information from Silvix of North America, which is USDA Agricultural Handbook, what, 654? 654. I can't tell you when the last one was published, maybe 1994, maybe 1987. And um, you can still get bound copies. I'll talk to you about the online version. But if this is a place where we're, if this is a, we're dealing with a tree that's native to North America, this is the first place to look. All right, so this is where um, you'll see in a minute, okay? I'm just giving you a clue here. How does Monterey pine die? It dies in three ways. It dies from pine pitch canker. Bill Jones, you don't have pine pitch canker in North Carolina, do you? Okay, absolutely. I'm sorry to hear it. Um, so pine pitch canker is a serious problem for our uh, native and planted Monterey pine stands. We also have red turpentine beetle and we have the five-spined engraver beetle. Uh, red turpentine beetle can kill the tree. It does not normally kill the tree. Uh, I think when we have um, Ips beetles attack, they're pretty much always fatal. We get a serious infestation. Is there anything we can do about these three problems? Once they're in the tree, no. This is a key thing to, to, be, to be aware of, to uh, acknowledge. That once, the, once Monterey pines have turpentine beetles or uh, engraver beetles, once they have pine pitch canker, we cannot treat it. There's no way for us to treat it to kill the insects or get rid of the fungus. There's really any way, there's hardly any way, there's no way for us to control it. What we can do is we can spray the lower trunk of uh, trees um, with, uh, we can apply a, a chemical to the lower trunk to prevent attack by red turpentine beetle. That's a prevention matter. Uh, we only see it in the lower six or eight feet of the trunk, so it's easy to, to spray the lower trunk of high value trees. Okay, so you get the idea, the, the, the thing that causes death, we can't control. We can't do anything about that. So let's look at it from Mannion's standpoint. We have predisposing factors. We take the, the natural range is limited. It's planted all over the Bay Area. So we've taken the tree, taken it out of it, its natural range. We, um, we hardly have uh, sandy soil, certainly in the East Bay. 
uh, where I live, we have very little sandy soil. And it's, this is one of the four trees that survives in the Presidio, and it's very sandy there. And uh, there's fossil evidence that it was actually on the site a couple thousand years ago. So uh, we take it out of its range. We put it in wet, heavy wet soils. Um, inciting factors are summer drought. It doesn't like, it doesn't appear to like high nighttime temperatures. So if you've ever been to Monterey or San Francisco in the summer, you know why Mark Twain said it was the coldest winter he ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Because it's freezing in the evening. We're just not used to that uh, kind of weather. Whereas uh, in, uh, where I live in the banana belt, it's warm in the evening as well. Um, we plant the trees on dense plantings where they have never been thinned, so they're competing for moisture, and then we could have summer drought. Um, we've had, uh, we had a very serious drought in the 90s, um, and we're still feeling the effects of that. And then it's possible that attack by red turpentine beetle could be a contributory factor um, to the appearance of the other problems. Are more mature trees more susceptible? Certainly bark beetles are preferentially, or at least seems to be, they prefer mature trees. I've seen um, pine pitch canker on uh, young trees, which says that they're getting insect attacks, um, but I've never seen a beetle kill of a of young tree. So yes, there's a mature tree link. So a mortality spiral, my perspective might be, we have a healthy tree taken out of its range, in fact, we're probably growing genotypes of Monterey pine in the landscape that were selected in New Zealand uh, rather than selected in Monterey. We have uh, drought stress, either regular drought, uh, lack of irrigation, or uh, episodic irrigation, and uh, stand competition. The timing and pruning practice of, of, uh, of uh, pruning is really important because, as I said earlier this morning, the, the both uh, engraver beetles and turpentine beetles are attracted to new pruning wounds. And so if we prune in the summer, we're more likely to have attacks than if we prune in the winter. There's also an intensity of pruning. Um, the recovery of the tree depends on foliage, and uh, we have a tendency to take off more than, than was really appropriate. And uh, then finally, the tree might get turpentine beetles, and what kills it is the pitch canker and engraver beetles. What's important to note, as I mentioned earlier, is um, when they get these, there's nothing for us to do. So how do we manage these pests? We have to prevent the conditions which make the trees susceptible to the bark beetles and the pitch canker that the insects are vectoring. We have to manage the trees then to do what? Prune in the winter so we avoid mechanical wounds. Mulch at the base so the tractors, uh, mowers are not running up uh, around the base of the trunk creating new wounds. Uh, irrigate, prune lightly to retain as much green foliage as we can where we have stands of trees, thin those stands to reduce competition. We can treat the lower trunk to prevent red turpentine beetle. Uh, we can, there is some availability of pitch canker resistant nursery stock that uh, is currently being tested and may be available on the market. The key message about Monterey pine decline here, like all declines, 
is we can't do anything about the proximate causes of death, beetles, pitch canker. We can't manage, treat, do anything for that. When the tree turns red, it isn't coming back. You know, when it turns yellow, it's not coming back. When it's carrying only one year of itty-bitty needles, it's not coming back. So our key management principles are all aimed at prevention, right? Avoid water stress, avoid mechanical wounds. Uh, those are really our two big themes that we use. So let's talk about oak decline. So oak decline is not a problem we see. It's a, it is a southeastern uh, issue for red oak, Quercus rubra, and Quercus coccinea, scarlet oak. It's characterized by the same pattern of reduced growth, small leaves, thin canopies, twig dieback, branch dieback, premature death. Premature, in this case, is 40 to 50 years, right? 40 to 50 years in downtown Pleasanton would be pretty dang good, but if you're growing timber, 40 to 50 years is not very good. What's the lifespan of red oak and scarlet oak? In... Uh, in uh, Again, Silvics of North America, uh, you would find uh, red oak is, uh, has a typical mortality of about 200 years. Um, uh, longest lived trees make, may make it to 50 years. Scarlet oak had a typical mortality of, of 50 years, and we don't know what the longest lived scarlet oaks are. So when we have a red oak that's dying at 50 years, that really is a premature death, right? These are trees are advanced aged and dying long before the typical mortality for the species. Here's their, uh, here's their range, native range. So if you're online, rather search online. If you type in red oak native range, one of the, into Google or, or uh, Firefox, Mozilla or one of those, one of the first things you'll come up with is the online version of the Silvix manual. Thank you, thank you, Ed Macy and the federal government for getting that information available to us. And here are the, uh, here's the native range of these two. So you see, uh, I think I got a close-up. Dang, I don't have a close-up. So you see this line, which I assume that could be the cold hardiness line, or is that a Piedmont coastal plain line? Scarlet oak has, you know, someone, something. These are not exactly the same shape, I apologize. So they're, they're, there's a little distortion there. But you notice that we certainly don't see red oak in its native range down here on the coastal plain. Even in New Jersey, where it's the state tree, when we get out in the coastal plain, the sandy pine barren soil, we don't see red oak. Um, and scarlet oak has a little different distribution, but centered on that central Appalachian range. Here's uh, the pattern of decline. We get a healthy tree, suffers from drought defoliation. There is some research in natural stands that it's not really drought that um, is associated with uh, oak decline, that the uh, trees on droughty sites are, there's simply more of them, they're colonized earlier, maybe there's more numbers, maybe they're competing with one another. But certainly, I think for individual trees in the landscape or small groups, we have to consider drought. That leads to the two line, attack by two-line chestnut borer, which then results in Armillaria hypoxylon, 
um, which is the tree's dead. Okay, so if that is the pattern, is there anything we can do here? No. The tree gets armillaria. As far as I'm aware, there's no treatment. Uh, you know, we could, uh, uh, there's no treatment. Will two-line chestnut borer kill the tree on its own? It is a significant pest, and it takes out the weak. Um, let me show you. So what is the native tree cover in the area? The research from Arkansas, the kind of sort of center of research for oak decline is the Forest Service in the Arkansas-Missouri area. They say that oak decline is most problematic on sites that would normally carry pine, that the trees just grow up, dense stands, and then they peter out really early and under this pattern. A borer attack precedes crown dieback, so that uh, at least in the evidence of the symptomology, uh, the progression of the decline, if we could keep borers out of the tree, maybe we could keep the dieback out of the tree. You know, when borers attack, that is a really significant uh, effect on the tree, a really serious attack on the tree health. So here's a two-line chestnut borer. If you go, you Google two-line chestnut borer and you get the Forest Service information page about it, what does it say? It says two -line ch adult two-line chestnut borers that primarily attack oaks that are damaged by drought or trees that are suppressed or declining. Well, isn't that true for every borer, every bark beetle? They seem to preferentially attack um, stressed and stressed trees. That, doesn't that say its prevention is the key? I don't know if there's some uh, chemical treatment for two-line chestnut borer once it's in the tree, but I'll bet a dollar against it. So that leads me to the question that we then have out west is, are two-line chestnut borer adults attracted to fresh pruning wounds? I, I uh, emailed Mike Raup and asked him that question. I don't have a response. If I get a response tomorrow, I'll tell you. If you know in the audience, if there's a research evidence, you can let me know. What is the control for oak wilt in the upper Midwest? Don't prune in May or June. I, they probably say, don't prune in May or June. So uh, the insects, that vector... Uh, what is that? Uh, Serratus cystis. Right, what you said, oak wilt. Uh, the, the insects that vector that are attracted to fresh pruning wounds. So one of the treatments is, you, or one of the prevention strategies is, you prune the trees in winter when the insects are not active, or at least in fall, winter, when the insects are not active. So... If this is our um, progression of the decline and those are our symptoms, what is our management strategy? Oh, dang. Excuse me. What is our management strategy? Um, we can't do anything about hypoxylon armillaria. Once the borers are in the tree, we can't do anything. I did have a college professor who said, you could take a coat hanger and shove it in the hole and excavate that way, kill the borers that way. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, question, uh, I question the effectiveness of that treatment. So isn't this a matter of keeping the tree healthy and prevention? Isn't that right up our arboricultural alley? Isn't that like what we do for tree care practices? So I, I think that, that what I know about oak decline, 
And what I know about uh, two-line chestnut borer is, is not a great deal, but if you look at this pattern of decline, it's similar to lots of other patterns of decline associated with diseases that come to weaken trees that have been weakened by uh, borer attacks and then stressed by defoliation drought. So that could be thinning stands where uh, if there is a native stand on a property, that could be thinning individual um, groups of trees, or it could be providing supplemental irrigation um, where irrigation is not present or during a dry summer month. So that's my comments about oak decline. I I'm happy to have questions in a little bit. So let me turn then to white pine decline, Pinus strobus. Here, here's, uh, here's my picture of white pine. Uh, right here in Michigan, that tree looks like I feel. Here's uh, the state of Minnesota's picture of white pine. I didn't have a good one. I couldn't find. Actually, I probably have a picture of white pine as a slide, but I couldn't dig it out and scan it because it was easier to just Google white pine and then go to the images page. I'm guilty. What do we know about white pine's distribution and its range? It prefers cool, humid climates. Precipitation exceeds evapotranspiration by one to one and a half times in every month of the year. This is a tree that right there in the Silvix manual says it tolerates, it requires a moisture surplus in every month of the year. So that says to me it's drought intolerant. It's not going to tolerate drought at all. And uh, there's its distribution. Here's the little close-up. Here's what it says in the soil section of the Silvix Manual. This pine should not be planted in heavy clay soils. When I was in New Jersey, that's the only place we planted it. Poorly drained bottomland sites and upland depressions are also poor choices for planting. So this tree is not going to tolerate wet sites, heavy soils, or those with drought. And if you check out the line here, where's my, uh, there's my pointer, that really looks like a temperature line, doesn't it? Like an Appalachian line. You notice that it avoids completely this salty Midwest soil where it's oak savanna grassland and it's uh, dry in the summer. You know, this stuff doesn't happen at random. These plants are distributed for a reason. Notice these little remnant outcrops there. Maybe we should take a field trip to this little location, see if there's any trees there. Now, if you go to uh, Ed Gilman's, if you, if you type in um, Pinus strobus planting range or something like that, there's a whole series of these ST publications. They're Forest Service fact sheets. I don't know what ST stand for, whether it's state publication or whatever. They're really um, mostly produced by Ed Gilman in cooperation with a Forest Service employee, and they're at the, they're at the University of Florida site. And um, what this uh, image represents is the potential planting range for eastern white pine, right? The potential planting range. And uh, here's the close-up, and there's a close-up for Georgia. I, I, I had the cold-hardiness map for Georgia, so there's the... I'm assuming that this is a temperature-related map, but I admit I don't know how these potential planting site maps are developed. 
because uh, I know Roger Kelgren out there at Utah State University, and they're not growing any eastern white pine on his, uh, his clay soils with no rain in the summer. I can guarantee that. Um, in 1988, uh, Jay Stipes and a graduate student, um, I don't know, Dr. Weaver, I think it's Mitchell or Michael, um, published a paper in the journal on white pie decline. They compared the development of white pine in native stands and in landscapes in Virginia, and they found that where they saw white pines declining or where they saw this problem was where there was high soil pH, so that's above 7. We have above 8 in our yard where there was high clay content to the soil, a disturbed soil profile that resulted in a shallow, restricted root system, um, where turf competition was present and certainly the lack of pine needle mulch. And then there was uh, white pine uh, root disease has also been implicated. They found it in few spots, but not every spot where white pine decline was present. So if you think of the predisposing factors, can we do anything about predisposing factors? No. Those are our static factors that are very difficult for us to manage or manipulate. What are those for white pine decline? Out of its native range, heavy soils, pH, turf competition. The inciting factor is largely drought. I don't think that, uh, in my experience with this species in both New Jersey and Michigan, I can't remember defoliating insects being problematic. And uh, in the landscape, you could get blister rust, but it wasn't, it didn't seem to be the number one problem. And then uh, the contributory factors might be the root disease and some scale insects, which could result in defoliation. So what are our management strategies for this? Well, the first is, if we can't plant in the native range, so we'll look, we might look for a substitute to eastern white pine in that coastal plain, warmer, out of its native range, or see if we can find um, uh, seed sources, plants grown from the southern end of the range and maybe on uh, the edge of the range where the soils might be similar. In the landscape, we can work to provide good drainage, aerify the soil, acidify the soil if that's possible, mulch, replace uh, uh, turf with mulch, um, remove and replace soil, and I don't think that there's any control of insect vectors, at least that I'm aware of. This is really a management opportunity for us. So this is like a perfect place for Bartlett's Root Rx, it's a perfect place for changing the soil environment, for other kind of management treatments, because once the plant starts to decline, it doesn't seem like we have much opportunity um, for controlling it, for managing it. So these are, so those are my really my comments about these declines syndromes. They're not really plant problems that we don't know anything about. We don't know what it is. This is really a group of, of diseases or syndromes that occur in a wide range of plants uh, across the country and occur with a, a very clear symptomatology and a, a fairly clear pattern of both environmental, abiotic, and abiotic factors that culminate in the death of the plant. 
Now, I could show you mortality spirals for, that culminate in the plant falling over if you want to see those too, but that's a different day. That's a couple of years. What's important for us to remember about these declines is that they're really a category, this category of disease that includes age as one of the factors that we can't do anything about the bottom of that decline. The end result is the death of the tree. That we have limited opportunities to manage, treat um, the diseases which eventually kill the tree. Where our opportunities for management occur in maintaining the health and vigor of the tree, preventing uh, those inciting stresses, the foliation, drought, uh, t uh, turpentine beetles, and so forth. In a, in, in a similar way, the same is true if we look at these problems from a mortality spiral idea, where we then add in the, uh, the concepts of management practice and where we can begin to bring things like pruning intensity and timing into the equation, or we might bring in thinning stands and managing density or where we might bring in tree preservation and uh, mechanical wounding. You know, the pines as a group are poor candidates for preservation on development sites uh, for many of the reasons we have here. And it's important for us to recognize that both in the decline syndromes and in the mortality spiral, that specific tree species have very clear examples of these. So that for Monterey pine, there aren't 50 different decline syndromes. There's one. It's the, it's the one we encounter. Uh, it has a couple of mortality spirals. It can fall over. It gets the swine, it's fungus. But really, 90% of the 95 to 98% of the trees that we see die, Monterey pines we see die, follow this syndrome that I described. So also, there's a, there's a, consider, a consistent pattern in terms of our management or our treatment strategies, right? Species site match. Uh, the trees are going to do best. Where these, these are out-of-the-range kind of edge-of-the-range issues. We provide good growing conditions, manage irrigation, fertility, pruning, wounding. Uh, the benefit of mulch is clear in both and manage defoliating or, or uh, other insects. This is one of those cases where I think on the insect level, there's a strong argument for chemical treatment as a preventative um, if it is effective because the, this is the last step before we get to the borers and the diseases that we can't control. So with that, I'll say thank you very much for the opportunity to be here this afternoon. This concludes Dr. Jim's Clark Lecture on Tree Decline Syndromes. If you'd like to learn more about tree health and maintenance, you can find many different materials at the ISA website, including one of Dr. Clark's books titled Arboriculture, the Integrated Management of Landscape Trees, Shrubs, and Vines. If you'd like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for this lecture is SA2099. Again, SA2099. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas at the ISA office or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. 
Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. 